there is a real intellectual necessity to come up with, to be able to explain violence as a modern phenomenon that is characteristic of societies across the globe for specific political reasons having to do with modernity that we can identify and trace and make chronologies of and analyze. And that's really fundamentally what I'm trying to do here in this book. It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. And that was just Laura Robson. Hi, I'm Laura Robson. I'm the Oliver McCourtney Professor of History at Penn State University, and I work on the 20th century Arab world. Teren Ertash and I spoke with her about her latest book, The Politics of Mass Violence in the Middle East, out now with Oxford University Press. The book is, at its core, an attempt to historicize violence in the Mushrik, which is to say, greater Syria and Iraq. Robson suggests how violence is a product of imperialism and state-making in the not-so-distant past. The book is also distinctly synthetic, attempting to think through these themes not within the bounds of one nation-state, but rather on a regional scale. Here's Laura Robson reading from a portion of the book to give you a sense of its scope. There is a material aspect to the history of mass violence in the Middle East that scholars, commentators, and the public alike have broadly failed to recognize. Throughout the 20th century, external invaders repeatedly deployed violence to promote their own material interests, in the process creating a fragmented political landscape in which bloodshed became the only way of laying claim to territory and power for both state and non-state actors across the Mashrik. Such actors found value in the promotion of violence as the only valid tool of state building, a practice common to the late Ottoman Committee of Union and Progress regime, European colonial governments operating under the auspices of the League of Nations, and post-colonial authoritarian regimes backed, funded, and supplied by imperial and neo-imperial interests. More on the history of violence and the writing of history in a minute when our program continues. We started by talking about how this book came to be. So I have to confess that in some ways this book wasn't really my idea. I can't really claim credit for it. Um, I was approached by Donald Bloxham and Mark Levine about writing a volume in this Zones of Violence series that they had been working on. They had already published several volumes and envisioned it as a series that would cover various geographies across the globe. And it was an attractive idea because my previous book, which is called States of Separation, is about ethnic cleansing in some respects, right? It's about transfer and partition plans. It's about the creation of ethnically homogenous states. And so I had been already engaged with the literature on mass violence, and it had struck me often how inadequate it was for understanding the modern Middle East and especially the 20th century. And I had also been teaching a class in comparative world history on genocide and ethnic cleansing in the modern world for some of the same reasons 
Some of the literature that I was especially interested in and that I taught is the literature on genocide and settler colonialism and how conceptions of ethnic cleansing and of genocide and of mass violence more generally have so many origin points. You know, the use of those strategies of violence as tactics of control have origin points in European imperialism for the modern era. And that, I think, it's something that is actually profoundly relevant to the Middle East, not just because of the case of settler colonialism in Palestine, but because of the kind of practices of demographic engineering that the European powers brought to their control of the Arab world, you know, in the first half of the 20th century. And I, that was something that I really thought had not been discussed enough. So it was a project that really did appeal to me as something that would kind of bring together several of the things that I had been thinking about, both in my research and in my teaching, and perhaps serve to bridge the gap between what genocide studies and genocide history and kind of histories of historiographies, I should say, of mass violence had to offer to scholars and students and what was being discussed in the context of Middle Eastern studies, which seemed like very, very separate things. So that was kind of the, or the genesis of the project and some of the original ideas and frames that I was bringing to it. So the starting point of the book is the 1878 Treaty of Berlin, sort of, right, in the late Ottoman period. And this is appropriate because one of the strongest arguments of the book is that a certain politics of violence emerged from external actors being embroiled with questions of sovereignty in the late Ottoman Empire. Could you talk about what form that took and why this was a sort of appropriate starting point for you to begin the book? So the reason the book starts there is because this is the moment, I think, where we can really begin to see an increased commitment to territorialization on the part of the Ottoman state. And by territorialization, I mean that rather than kind of pre-modern practices of lately governing territories through the use of essentially taxation on the one hand and conscription on the other, that we have a much more comprehensive saturation of territory with the mechanics, the infrastructure, the physical architecture of political authority and political rule. And the Ottoman Empire starts to think this is necessary because of the nature of the European interventions in the Ottoman sphere that are not begun in 1878 by any means, but sort of formalized in some ways in that moment. So I think this takes on, I would point to a couple of particularities. One is that because European states, European empires, made the decision to intervene in Ottoman affairs through what they thought of as client communities, who were often what we now call minorities, although that's an anachronistic term, the Ottoman state begins to see its grasp of territory as being threatened by the presence of some of its internal subject populations. So this is laying the seeds of Ottoman violence, right, that will become so evident in the late 19th and early 20th century. And the other thing is that the European states are because of their footprint, their economic and military and political footprint that is becoming kind of more and more and more evident in the Ottoman sphere in this period, are beginning to force the Ottoman state to declare a new kind of sovereignty over that territory, which has to be enforced in military ways and, and through the use of violence. It's a moment when we really do begin to see the kind of setup of 
the integration of violence in the practice of modern state governance, both in Europe and in the Ottoman sphere, kind of simultaneously and in intertwined ways. About this sort of new form of sovereignty that you are articulating or seeing at the end of the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th and 20th century, could you talk a little bit more about what that new form of sovereignty is entailing one of the things that begins to entail is a differentiation of types of subject populations and types of territories, right? So this is the beginning of the Ottoman Empire thinking, for instance, about its Arab provinces as something slightly closer to colonies in the European sense than had ever been the case before. The Arab provinces had always previously been a kind of integral part of the empire, but now we begin to see them used as resources, viewed as separate, distinguished ethnically and linguistically in new sorts of ways. The same is true of the Balkans, of course, which are the territories about which the Ottoman sphere is most worried during this period, right? And the Ottomans begin to see the Balkans similarly as a separate sort of territory in which different kinds of rule have to be practiced. So I think that's one important new development in this period, right, is that we see the kind of articulation of different provincial and even colonial identities. That's a, an arguable point, certainly, but a differentiation of space within the empire that is, is new and is newly articulated, right? The other thing that's really interesting that happens during this period is a kind of experimentation with and then abandonment of electoral politics, right? Because it seems, I think, initially to the Young Turks, to the CUP, as it takes power, that it might be possible to legitimize their increasingly kind of heavy-handed form of governance through electoral political rule. And as it becomes clear that that will be more difficult, the kind of, you know, actually accomplishing electoral victories is going to be a more difficult task than they had initially hoped, that process is essentially abandoned, right? So by the time we get to the First World War, we don't in fact have, you know, we don't have meaningful electoral politics in the same way. It's been a very, very brief experiment in some ways in constitutionalism and, and election practice. So. This is also something that I think will come up again later, right, that many states kind of think initially about constitutionalism and about representative politics and electoral politics as a way of legitimizing this newly strengthened territorialized state, but it's not always something that sticks and that what happens when those politics are abandoned is often a turn to the politics of force. In the book, Laura writes about the genocide and ethnic cleansing that occurred amidst World War I. In our interview, we talked about how the suffering of the conflict contributed to a sense of the Mashrik as regionally distinct within the Ottoman Empire. So it's really not until the war itself, I think, that some of these trends become clear and the Mashrik and the Arab provinces begin to be treated as resources for a state at war. And that becomes particularly clear in the case of the famine that envelops Syria and Lebanon and Palestine for several years during the war, is worst in Lebanon, but goes across much of the region. And these practices of requisitioning, of conscription, of the use of these spaces as food supply arenas, alongside a new practice of censorship, which I think is actually quite an important point to make here, 
distinguishes the Arab provinces as a resource to be mined rather than as an integral part of the imperial center. There are many ways in which that actually is new and that it's really, it's, it's something, it's a development that's driven by the exigencies of war more than by a kind of explicit political articulation. But it has two consequences. One is internal, where the Ottoman state, you know, the CUP-driven Ottoman state begins to think of itself as more and more as a Turkish state. But also it has an effect in the provinces themselves, which have historically, of course, thought of themselves as Ottoman, right? And that that is an intellectual framing that lasts for a remarkably long time, you know, long past the First World War. We can see the remaining traces of Ottomanism across the Arab world. But during the war, because of this treatment, we are also seeing kind of countervailing impulses towards thinking about, okay, what is the Mashrik? What are the Arab provinces? Is there such a thing as Arabism? Is there such a thing as, you know, Syrian regional identity? We're starting to see people begin to search for and think about alternatives to the Ottoman frame. So it's something that happens within the central state and within the provinces, and it has very kind of long-lasting repercussions for the making of a new region that will be distinct from Anatolia in, in really kind of different ways than we saw even, even in the 19th century Ottoman sphere, I would argue. One of the points you make about the mandate period and the Mashrik is how the liberal language of the League of Nations is accompanied by new forms of colonial violence. How do you see these dynamics interacting? And how do you see your book speaking to this sort of new emergent literature addressing the colonial roots of liberalism and their sort of co-constitutive presence in the making of the modern world and especially in this moment of the first half of the 20th century? Yeah, this is a really good question and one that I like a lot. I want to say two things about this. One is that the historiography, both on the modern Middle East and on European imperial practice more generally, has broadly not recognized how brutally violent the mandates in the Middle East were, right? We have concentrated as historians too hard on the rhetorical aspects of the mandatory system of, you know, the kind of theoretical oversight by the League, the theoretical and hypothetical kind of progress towards independence that the language around mandatory rule suggested. We've looked at that a lot, right, over and over again, and we have ignored how these territories were actually held on the ground, which was by the use of force and extremely brutal force at that. I think that we really need to recognize that this late incarnation of colonialism across the Middle East, in Palestine, in Syria, in Iraq, was profoundly brutal and profoundly bloody. And that we really have just had a kind of basic failure to acknowledge that fact, right? So that was one of the things that I wanted to point out in these chapters on the mandate. The second is that when you have this extremely brutal and bloody type of rule coexisting with language about the imposition of the liberal nation state, right? And about the encouragement of the liberal nation state, you are fundamentally discrediting the project of liberal democracy and the liberal state in general. And this is something, I think in a way it's remarkable that any faith in the liberal nation state continues to exist at all by the time we get to the 1940s, given the on the ground experience of colonial rule that these populations have had. This is something that happens in other places as well, right? This is, this is kind of an aspect of colonialism 
that, again, I think we have sort of yet to come to terms with the way that the liberal state and the project of liberalism is so deeply bound up with practices of the most extreme kind of colonial violence. And so I think that this is something that is about the discrediting of this project, but it's also about just recognizing that by the time post-colonial states come to be, they are building on shattered societies. And that's something that we, we haven't kind of seen clearly enough, I think. And, and it's also something that's not unique to the Middle East. I mean, I think this is, this is a global story um, in this period as earlier ones. I wanted to talk more about the regional frame because we have books dealing with mandate era violence, Michael Provence writing about Syria, Priya Satya on Iraq, any number of people on Palestine. And so I was curious, was there something about reading across borders that made these dynamics of colonial violence visible to you in a different way? One of the kind of secondary historiographical impulses that led me to write this book was that I have increasingly come to think that Palestine as a colonial state is a lot less exceptional than people tend to think. And that actually the practices of colonial brutality that we see in Palestine, and even some of the practices of settler colonialism, especially as is reflected in things like patterns of refugee resettlement and patterns of demographic engineering and patterns of kind of ethnically conscious legislative constructions, those are things that happen in particular ways in Palestine, but they also happen in Syria, they also happen in Lebanon, they also happen in Iraq. These are regional patterns that the particular forms of colonial brutality are common across the region. And it's one of the things, it's not the only thing, but that experience of colonial brutality, I think, is an important thread in what ties the Mashrik together as a region through the rest of the 20th century, right? That they have this shared memory of the particular type of colonial occupations to which they have all been subjected. I think all of those books that you have mentioned have been really, really profoundly useful in helping us to understand, you know, practices of colonialism and what things look like in specific frames, but that we have been slightly missing the broader picture here, right? That what happens in Palestine has resonances with what happens in these other spaces. And of course, the kind of particularities of Palestine has often, I think, blinded us to those sorts of comparisons, even, even when our comparator points are essentially next door. And prior to the First World War, we're part of the same political frame. So I do think that regionalism is, is an important part of the argument. And it has ramifications, of course, for how we understand the post-colonial region as well and centrally how we understand the state of Israel eventually. 1948 is crucial, not just because it creates a state that of course many in the region view as essentially a kind of reification of imperial rule, right? And a kind of, you know, making permanent of imperial occupation um, in the Mashrik, but also because it does so as an ethnic nation state that is valorized and legitimized and supported by the emerging international community in the form of the United Nations, right? So the message that people are hearing in 1948, and I think this is true in the Mashrek, it's true in the Middle East generally, but it's also true in the kind of decolonizing world writ large, the message that people are hearing is the ethnic nation state is the only viable form of political organization that will be recognized at the sphere of international power. And that, I think, is, is really a turning point in terms of what both the old political classes and the kind of new class politics that's going to be so evident in the 1950s and 60s, what they see as viable 
going forward as they begin to try to reconstruct something on the remnants of these kind of shattered societies coming out of the colonial period. I suppose this is a good way to lead into thinking about the Cold War moment and the ways in which during the Cold War the dynamics of violence in the region are changing. And, and sort of new universalist projects are also getting introduced into this mix where liberalism is losing its cadence, perhaps, in a way, but there is still um, there are still political projects that are being articulated that people attach themselves to. And, and at the same time, you have the superpowers. So I was wondering how you see the Cold War change the dynamics of violence in the region and how you see sort of local actors trying to resist these dynamics or co-opt them, perhaps, for their own uses. Clearly, we have a couple of important shifts in terms of the kind of overseers of the imperial project, right? So the shift of power from Britain to the United States is an important one. The U.S. has a specific kind of relationship with the idea of the ethnic nation state because of its own settler colonial past. And I think that it views the ethnic politics of the region in every bit as instrumentalist a way as, as Britain and France did, but is less willing to articulate those premises in kind of an active public way, right? And so one of the things that happens, as you say, we kind of, we see the abandonment of kind of the, the rhetoric of liberal empire, right? And its replacement with the rhetoric of anti-communism and the rhetoric of humanitarianism, right? Which is also something that kind of has precedence in the earlier part of the century, but is being used in new ways by states in a different kind of frame in this post-Cold War period. So the mechanisms of power start to be different, right? As the United States, and to a lesser degree, but still relevant, the Soviet Union, look for modes of influence that will not require direct occupation, one of the things that they focus on are the kind of material elements of rule, right? And that includes resources, it includes oil, although that's not the only thing, but it's an important one. But it also includes things like the arms trade, right? It includes providing the kind of material apparatus of warfare and of violent rule to client governments and client populations on the ground. And that actually, I, th I think for the Cold War United States proves to be something they see as a successful strategy for a number of decades and is in some ways still operative now. If I may ask a follow-up, uh, how does American developmentalism play out in this period? Also, you know, because we are talking about resource extractive modes of governing and also um, at the same time there is a sort of developmentalist rhetoric that is being deployed by the American um, government. So how do you see that it's a very good point. I mean, I think this is another aspect of kind of governance through materiality um, that alongside the provision of weapons and alongside, you know, the control of resources, we have another kind of material aspect to American involvement in the Middle East through the developmentalist state, right? And it's interesting, this takes on a couple of really interesting formulations that I think, you know, could bear more sustained attention. One is through 
institutions like UNRWA and through the Palestinian refugee crisis, right? That UNRWA and these and the UNHCR later on, these these kinds of refugee relief institutions become a site for this kind of modernization project and developmentalist project um, in ways that would be interesting to explore further, right? I mean, I think that that's, that's sort of a technically humanitarian project that does also manage to open up a lot of commercial possibilities for American engineering firms, for instance, to come in and work on water development um, in Jordan or reforestation in Gaza, um, that there are a number of kind of interesting case studies of the way that, that refugees are actually a site for this kind of developmentalism that is clearly intended to increase the purchase of American authority in the region, but also not incidentally opens up new sorts of economic opportunities and economic ties for American corporations and for American individuals. So I think that this is another example of the kind of imperial turn towards material investment, material participation over overtly political participation, if that makes sense. It, it's a strategic move, and it's one that we can see in a lot of different kinds of venues. So in a way, the American presence in the Cold War Middle East is more diffuse than the British and French presence was in the pre-1945 pre Middle East. But it begins to, it's another example of territorialism in a kind of non-state-oriented way, right, that it begins to saturate the space with the infrastructure and the mechanics and the materialities of American rule and American occupation without necessarily overtly declaring it a region of a political project. You write a little bit about the 70s and 80s as a new kind of sectarianism, a new kind of spectacular sectarian violence. Could you talk about that a little bit? At least some of that sectarianism is coming from secular states. That I mean, the most kind of spectacular instances of violence, of ethnically oriented violence that we see in that period comes from Ba'athist Iraq and arguably from Israel, right? Which, which is kind of targeting its Palestinian occupied populations in newly violent ways. In Lebanon, too, I think that, you know, we need to understand the secular impulses behind what appears as a sectarian conflict in the Civil War. The sectarian conflict, the sectarian violence that we begin to see is largely a consequence of these politics of neo-imperialism that we were just discussing, right? And of the way that these states that have been kind of formulated and backed and armed and funded by the U.S. and or the Soviet Union in this period have resorted to the use of violence as a, the only legitimization and the only real political practice in their arsenal, right? And as part of that, they are constantly identifying populations within their own states that they think poses a challenge to this kind of territorial authority. So we can see this in Iraq, for instance, where violence against the Kurds by the Ba'athist state is not really, I would argue, is not really sectarian in nature, right? It's territorial in nature. It is about the state seeing this kind of zero-sum game where it has to take control over this territory, over this land in a forcible way in order to maintain its own legitimacy and that it has the means to do that because of the materialities of American neo colonial and neo-imperial and Soviet neo-imperial influence as well. 
something I often say to my students, violence produces ethnic conflict, not the other way around, right? And I actually think this is something that I think it's profoundly true for the Middle East, but I think it's probably a, a principle that could be applied elsewhere as well, um, that, you know, we don't see kind of primordial ethnic conflict and then eruptions into violence, but rather we see violence in terms of jockeying for political position and, and, and particularly kind of states determined on territorial control, producing ethnic conflict, producing new kinds of ethnic tensions, which then can be very difficult to erase. You know, I mean, I, I think it's important to recognize when we talk about the production of sectarian and ethnic violence and tensions, that we're not saying those things aren't in some way real, right, or meaningful. Um, but we can say that they are produced at particular moments and that they have very little indeed to do with ancient animosities or even, even modern animosities, right? But really they are about the political difficulties of the moment. The end point in some ways is the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 but also the Syrian civil war. And so I wondered if you could talk about how those events in different ways have been intensifications of, of this process of, of territorialization and violence that you see. The American invasion of Iraq in 2003 was in some ways a return to the more active imperial practices of the British period, right, and the French period. So when we see this active invasion and the difficulties of controlling the space that the American army faces, we also see a kind of retreat into much older patterns of imperial violence and imperial control, which involves identifying client communities and separating them out from each other, right? So one of the things I talk about in the book, and this is something other scholars have pointed out long before I did, you know, to, to talk about the ways in which the actual architecture of occupation, especially during the surge, the so-called surge in 2007-ish, took the form of building walls and declaring neighborhoods to be either Sunni or Shia, right? Which is a new thing in a mixed city like Baghdad. We know that it's long had these kind of incredibly diverse and vibrant ethnic and linguistic and religious communities. You know, it was something like 25% Jewish in the earlier part of the century. You know, so this is, this is a phenomenon that is produced by colonial rule, not recognized by colonial rule, right? So in a way, it's kind of a, it's a throwback moment, right? Where we see reification and the rebirth of much older forms of imperial violence in, ironically, in, in precisely the same spaces that the British engaged in in the 1920s and 1930s. Overlaid on that, though, we still have this kind of hangover from the Cold War of this narrative of humanitarianism and assistance, right? And developmentalism, as you were saying earlier. And so it's it becomes this kind of hybrid colonial system that uses an intensification of violence, not just to promote the kind of older ideas that we're somehow building a democratic nation state in Iraq, but also that this is in some way a humanitarian enterprise that has to do with relief work, right? And so it's kind of a confluence of all sorts of strains of imperial violence um, that we've seen across the century in various different spaces. And that becomes really evident in the Syrian civil war, right? Where the material benefit of that kind of on-the-ground occupation is less evident to the Western powers. And so we have a kind of architecture of piecemeal 
imperial military violence without necessarily a vision about exactly what form that's going to take or what sorts of political outcomes might be hoped for that are nevertheless still covered over with this vague and undefined rhetoric and narrative of humanitarianism and humanitarian aid. Right. Um, so I think this is these are these are both spaces, you know, these are stories that are still unfolding, but they're both spaces where we can really see the kind of long durée of imperial politics from the late 19th century all the way up to the present. And it seems like a humanitarianism entwined with that violence that that and there's there's a politics. Yeah. And I mean, that's not new either. Right. I mean, we can see that in the kind of supposedly humanitarian interventions on behalf of refugees, you know, in Armenians in Syria, for instance, in the 1920s, who were used as pawns of the colonial state in some of the same sorts of ways. Um, you know, I think this the the American interest in the Kurdish project is likewise not a disinterested one, right? Um, so we can really see that this kind of identification of vulnerable, ethnically or linguistically or religiously defined potential client communities is one that is, it's a thread that goes through the whole of the century. I, I, I think this question tracks pretty well with um, what we are just now talking about, because one of the main interventions or uh, suggestions of the book is that a lot of the violence that we see in the Middle East actually has its sources in um, variously articulated colonial projects from the Treaty of Berlin to the invasion of Iraq and um, the American policies during the Syrian civil war. And I was wondering how you throughout the book, balance between thinking about external influence and local agency. So this is a question about the specifics of these case studies, but it's also a question about the nature of political violence more generally, right? And I would say a couple of things. One is that we can clearly see that imperial projects like this do rely on local partners, that they rely on local clients who are often participating less than fully willingly, let's say, but nevertheless become kind of important partners in these projects of, of colonial occupation and the articulation of forms of colonial rule. You know, and obviously there are all sorts of countervailing movements and impulses, you know, across the region that resist the, the imposition of these systems and that we need to recognize those and acknowledge them. That said, one of the things that studying violence tells us is that violence is fundamentally a place where agency ends, right? This is why states use violence, because it does in fact have the capacity to end political agency if you're willing to use it. And I think that's a hard truth, right? And it's one that we haven't, as historians, always fully articulated because I think we want to believe that agency, local agency can win out. And I think one of the things that the history of this kind of colonial violence tells us is that sometimes it can't, right? When you are really faced with the kind of the kind of physical brutality that, for instance, the European colonial powers brought into their mandatory regimes, sometimes it is not possible to make your voice heard in the way that you might like, right? And might be seeking to. And so we need to acknowledge, I think, that many of these movements were actively crushed through the use of violence. And that that's something that we have to recognize and publicize and make clear that in fact, violence has the purpose of ending political agency 
for the colonized. And that's why colonial and imperial states use it. It's why authoritarian states use it. I'm not saying that there are kind of no ways out, but I think we do need to acknowledge that it works, that it is, it is a tool that works for a lot of governments, for a lot of states, for a lot of individuals in identifiable moments. So it's a very difficult question, right? And it's one that we should maybe, you know, we, we can think about as we study what violence looks like and what it means in the Middle East, but also in other places across the globe in this period of, you know, colonial rule and decolonization. I agree with you. <laughs> That's the beginning. Like, I agree with you. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm wondering if uh, sort of the political agency that is getting crushed by colonial violence, is it always necessarily originating from an external place? Or can we also locate within Middle Eastern actors themselves um, motive for which they would be crushing political resistance to themselves. So I guess the question I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around has to do with how to balance this external influence that, that is European or American or Soviet influence with um, local co-optations and deployments of that of violence of some sort. I think it's a it's a good point. And I think that one of the answers is that this is a this is a dynamics of exchange that goes both ways, right? So one of the things to remember when we look at these kinds of sites of occupation is that yes, it's true that, you know, American and Soviet power for instance is being exerted on Middle Eastern territory, but also that actors on the ground are changing what American and Soviet power means and the forms that it takes, right? And the kind of nations that these places are becoming. So, I think that there are many ways in which, you know, there this is an a profoundly inequitable relationship, but it is not a one-way relationship, right? And I think to take the example of the proxy war in Afghanistan, that is a war where the local actors essentially dictated outcomes for both the United States and the Soviet Union with truly earth-shattering consequences globally, right? Um, and I think we need to acknowledge that these actors, even when, even when their political agency is crushed by violence at, at moments, and we can certainly see that repeatedly across the century, right? They are shaping the nature of the states they are encountering just as much as they are being shaped by the nature of the states they are encountering, right? So I think this is kind of a, you know, a historiographical call to arms about empire studies and the study of what we call decolonization, which I think is in some ways a misnomer. How can we see this as a global process and not the inaction of certain kinds of mechanisms on populations by other populations, right? And actually, just to make a kind of suggestion about that, I think this is a place where the history of refugees and migration can really help us to think through some of the methodologies and the methodological problems and, and possibly solutions, because refugees are a population who, in fact, are at the mercy of states and international organizations quite a lot of the time, and also have had a profoundly important 
impact on the shaping of the states, both the states that they are coming from and the states that they come into, in terms of borders, in terms of nationalisms, in terms of types of governance, in terms of rule, in terms of international law. You know, there are populations whose, whose interests, whose agencies, whose acts are stamped on every aspect of our modern state system. Right. So I think we need to think about this as a whole and as a collective while recognizing inequities and inequalities and injustices within that collective project of the kind of making of the post-colonial world. I had a question. It's touching on this topic from, from a different angle and, and related to that passage that you read at the beginning about there being a material aspect to this history. I wondered if you could talk more about what that material aspect is, because the vulgar sense would be it's about oil, but but I think you're saying something more nuanced. What what do you see as as that material aspect? Classically, in kind of imperial theory, right, we talk about the extraction of resources and the creation of captive markets as kind of two parts of the same, you know, phenomenon, right? But I think the thing that that, and certainly I don't mean to undercut that, I think oil does matter, right? I think these kind of material extractions do matter. I think the creation of captive markets for manufactured goods is a phenomenon that we see in, in colonial and imperial rule and in neo-colonial and neo-imperial rule as well. But I think we tend sometimes to not see the materialities of governance. How does governance work on the ground? So when I'm talking about the material aspects, I'm not just talking about resources. I'm talking about how states enact power. How do they build railways? How do they have shipping? How, what are their supply lines like? How many forces does it take to protect an oil pipeline going into Haifa, for instance, right? And who are those forces? And what kinds of operations do they run, right? How do you get water? How do you get housing? How are people settled, right? there? So part of what I'm talking about here is a materiality of rule. And that's something that can actually tell us a lot about where power dynamics are, and it can tell us unexpected things about agency as well, to return to the earlier question, right, about kind of where the opportunities are for agency within populations who are inevitably participating in the kind of structuring, physical structuring, of this kind of state apparatus. So I think that's that's a historiographical direction that we might explore further, you know, to think about. When we think about material history, you know, there are kind of crude Marxist senses in which we think about, you know, resource extraction and, and labor markets. Those are important too, but also we can think about material history as being part of this kind of history of, of empire and decolonization and the kind of making of, a, of new forms of state power and authority. What was the process of working with secondary scholarship for, for the writing of the book? And, you know, we kind of touched on it earlier about the regional scale and being able to kind of connect dots in ways and make comparative points that other people might not have been able to make so forcefully. Like, what was that experience like? You know, it's really interesting. So this is the first book that I've written that was not archival at all. And also that kind of reached into areas of scholarship and subfields that I have not done primary research in. So in the Cold War era, I'm sort of beginning to do that now, actually. But um, but you know, when I was writing the book, this is these are areas that I hadn't contributed to the historiography directly myself. And I was struck by a couple of things. One is that. Actually, when you set out to read secondary literature, 
across a big range that it is interesting how you do see themes emerging, right? That it is in fact possible, I think, to come to bigger conclusions than you do when you're focused in on your own archival sources or when you're trying to construct a narrative that hasn't been constructed before. Um, that in fact, it's, it's interesting how, in my view, how obvious some of these conclusions were, right? And that there was consensus across the scholarship that just hadn't quite been articulated in this way, but was nevertheless kind of quite clearly there. And that was interesting to me to see that. For instance, in the use of violence in the authoritarian state, um, you know, so this is something that's, that's an example of a field that, you know, I myself have not done primary research in. And when I was reading about, you know, the authoritarian states that emerge in Syria and Iraq from the 1950s onward, that the consensus about the nature of the use of violence and the identification of client communities and the specific ways in which those regimes were supported by particular external actors, you know, these, these are things that have been articulated pretty repeatedly and pretty consistently across the scholarship, but not placed into a kind of frame of understanding what American neo-imperialism in the Cold War Middle East writ large looks like, right? We don't have that book, which would be a great book and somebody should write it. So I think that one thing is that when we do read across secondary literature and we aim to really look at everything together, you do, in fact, it is possible to come to some of these kinds of bigger conclusions. And of course, not that they're, they won't be open to, to further debate or anything like that, but that, that it's important to kind of stake some claims and to look over the secondary literature. Careful archival research is, is at the core of what historians do, right? I mean, I, I, I don't want to undercut it. I don't want to suggest that it's not absolutely central to our enterprise. I also think that as a field, we have maybe been a little too cautious about drawing out the kinds of big histories that people do, for instance, in European historiography, right? We don't have books like, to draw on the genocide studies literature, we don't have books like Bloodlands in Middle Eastern history, right? We don't have these books that really seek to kind of understand large regional landscapes and explain them to a broader public audience. And we could. The, the scholarship is there, the literature is there, the understanding is there, we just haven't done it. And I think there are reasons for that. I think there are a lot of anxieties around the kind of post-colonial nation state in the Middle East that have limited our ability to look at those things. But it's not, it's not helping our field and it's not helping our political causes and it's to kind of refrain from doing that sort of explanatory work to a public audience that is interested providing information that is already out there. And I think that maybe this is a little bit of a call to action. You know, historians, we have a responsibility to do this. And I think it's possible. And I think that working on archival materials is central, but not the only path to coming up with historical truth. Can I ask how you write? Are you a like 500 words a day person or? You know, it's funny. I get asked this question quite a lot and I don't really have a very good answer for it. I'm a nine to five in the office kind of person. <laughs> you know, I don't work on the weekends. I don't work at night. I guess I would say that I think writing for me is a practice that I try to show up for and I don't have kind of set work deadlines or word deadlines, um, except in a sort of general calendary sort of sense sometimes. I think that often just getting down a first draft is actually the hardest part, right? And that as a writing practice, I try to remind myself that 
it's okay for something to be terrible in the first iteration, that editing is easier than writing, right? And so once you have something down, you can work on it. I also want to say that I think that one of the, this is something that's really been revealed this year, right, is that scholarship is fundamentally a collective enterprise and that no one is a solo author and that actually our conversations with our colleagues and friends and interlocutors are profoundly formative, profoundly important, whether that's you know in person or through conferences and workshops or through reading out each other's work and making comments that I think it's worth acknowledging that the collectivity of the enterprise and the way in which we're really resting on other people's insights and accomplishments and that you know every book is is kind of a, a collective production. So I think I think that's something that is really important to kind of publicly state and acknowledge and that it's also one of the most gratifying parts of being a scholar, you know, being part of this field that is kind of whatever our internal disagreements, right? We are trying to move towards something that we think is a, a, a valuable presentation of historical truth. So I only have one other question. And actually, I know you've been asked this previously, but this question is about music because I know you're a trained pianist. And I wonder if you could talk about if that shapes how you write or or how you approach history. For many people who trained seriously as musicians, it's one of those kind of inescapable facts about your life forever that you never get away from, you know? I trained very seriously as a classical pianist for years and years. I have a master's degree in performance from the Royal Academy of Music. Um, so it was a huge part of my life for a long time. And I think it teaches you two things. One is the value of discipline, right? That practicing an instrument is a grind and you show up for it day after day after day and you spend hours and hours on it and it's usually not very fun. And you know, one of the reasons I eventually moved away from music is because I decided I didn't want to spend six hours a day in a basement room practicing. But also that there's value in learning how to log hours. And, and I think that that's something that musicians and athletes have in common, actually, and that is, is kind of a valuable lesson for us as writers and as thinkers, that not every moment will be transcendent, you know, and that the practice and the discipline is actually what gets you there in, in some very real ways. So I think that's one thing. And the other is about performance, is that, you know, music requires an audience, and actually, so does writing, so does scholarship. You know, we need to be turning towards our audiences and saying, this is what this is for, right? The production of knowledge is for dissemination, it is for sharing, it is for performance, and that we have a responsibility not just to create that knowledge and make it kind of available, but to make it attractive and vibrant and interesting and, you know, something that will bring our audiences in in exactly the same way that performers have to. So I think it has shaped how I think about you know, the, the practice of historical writing and, and scholarship um, in some pretty central ways and that actually the practices of, of performance and the kind of field of music has some things to teach the practice of scholarship. That's Laura Robson. Her book, The Politics of Mass Violence in the Middle East, is out now with Oxford University Press. Of course, as always, you can find more information on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, including a bibliography and related episodes. You can also join us on Facebook, where the community of listeners is over 35,000 strong. That's it for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care.